Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. You are listening to As a Woman, episode 109, Inclusivity with Dr. Emily Seidler. In this episode, we are talking all about what it means to be inclusive and why it is so important. Welcome to As a Woman, the podcast hosted by fertility physician, Dr. Natalie Crawford, to educate and empower women. Each week, learn about your health, your fertility, and how they relate to your true self. Become a part of the community, fostering collaboration over competition while learning how to authentically find your voice and amplify others as a woman. Hi, friends. Welcome back to the As a Woman podcast. I am so excited for this episode. I've been really excited to have it here. So I'm having my friend, Dr. Emily Seidler. She is a reproductive endocrinologist at Boston IVF. She specializes in all aspects of fertility, but has a particular interest in fertility preservation, egg freezing, and LGBTQ family building. Her pronouns are she, her, and hers. And we are going to talk about inclusivity, what it is, what it means, and why it's important. Emily's a rock star. She graduated with honors from the University of Wisconsin. She completed a year-long AmeriCorps program, providing health education to underserved populations. She got her medical degree at Marshall University, and she was president of the American Medical Women's Association. She went on to complete a residency in OBGYN at WashU and her fellowship at Beth Israel de Conis in Boston. Following fellowship, she took a faculty job at Harvard and sees patients at Boston IVF. I'm so honored that she took the time to share all of her thoughts and experience with us. You are going to love this episode. You can also catch her at Instagram at Emily Seidler, MD. Emily, thank you so much for joining us today. I am so thrilled to have you on the podcast. Oh, thanks, Matt. I'm so excited to be here. I'd love if you would start by just telling everybody how you got into medicine, because I know most of us didn't grow up thinking that we were going to be a fertility doctor. So what is your story and your background? Yeah. So it's, it's kind of a funny story, actually. And there were two sort of cliche aha moments, I would say. Um, so I went to college at University of Wisconsin-Madison. So I'm going to fast forward to there where I was a pre-med and I knew I wanted to go into medicine. I was like that weird kid who would watch surgery shows like growing up and my parents were, you know, a little concerned, like she'd either be a serial killer or a physician. (laughs) (laughs) I always liked cooking because I liked, you know, playing with things and cutting things and working with my hands. And so I decided to go into medicine. I was pre-med in college and freshman year, I took a class called human sexuality. And of course, you know, every 18 year old loved taking that class because it was about sex. And we, uh, it was kind of a soft science class, so a little easier. And the first, the first day in this very large 500 person lecture hall, they showed a video of an unmedicated birth. So a woman, vaginal delivery, no epidural, and it was quite graphic. She was in a ton of pain. She was screaming. There was blood, there were fluids. I had never seen anything like this ever. 
and I passed out. Passed oh my out gosh. Old. No in joke. class, like, in class. In class, 500 person lecture hall. <laughs> completely mortifying, right? I mean, I was unconscious, but uh, afterwards, completely mortified. And I <laughs> come to, all the lights are on, there are people hovered around me, they're worried. I wanted to die, like, could, so embarrassed, right? So I leave the lecture hall and immediately, you know, in tears, calling my parents. And I talk to my dad and tell him the story. Like, I can't go into medicine. I can't be a doctor. He said, no, no, don't be ridiculous. You, you know, of course you can. You just can't go into OBGYN. <laughs> that's the one that's off limits. Yeah, exactly. I'm like, okay, yeah, check. OBGYN off the list. Okay. Fast forward and, you know, I'm volunteering at a Planned Parenthood. I'm, you know, volunteering doing Sex Out Loud, which is about safer sex. You know, all of sort of the writings on the wall, but in the back of my head, I'm like, I can't go into OBGYN. And then I'm in medical school. And for those of you who don't know, med school is a bit about learning the foundational basics, but a lot about sort of trying on all of the different fields and seeing which one is the right fit. And so, you know, it's funny, Nat, you, I know, started in emergency medicine and switched over to OBGYN. And I, too, was an emergency medicine girl and thought that's what I was going to go into. I have an uncle and a cousin who are in emergency medicine. There's actually a lot of similarities, the kind of fast pace, the mm-hmm. adrenaline and the excitement, working with your hands, making quick decisions. So I thought I would do emergency medicine. Um, I briefly thought about general surgery, maybe even derm. It's kind of funny to think about the things that you know now would not be the right fit for you. Um, And so I'm a third year med student and I am down in the emergency department to see a consult. And it's, you know, like an old guy with chest pain or something. And I'm looking at the board in the emergency room. There's like a big board that has, you know, the patient's chief complaint, their age, male, female, the bay that they're in, the location. And I'm scanning the board, looking for the patient I'm supposed to be seeing. And like subconsciously, I'm like, I really only want to see this one, that one, that one. And it's all, of course, like OBGYN type patients. So I want to see the 30-year-old rule out ectopic pregnancy. I want to see the 65-year-old with postmenopausal bleeding. I want to see the 45-year-old with, you know, heavy period. I don't really want to see the kid with a sore throat. I definitely didn't want to see the old man. And with the chest pain that I was there that I was supposed to be seeing. And I was like, oh crap, I have to do OBGYN. And like the background of this is also, as you know, and anyone who's in medicine, you get a lot of opinions. You get a lot of people sharing opinions they don't need to be sharing, <laughs> telling you why you shouldn't do X, Y, and Z. And they say, you don't want to do OBGYN. Those women are bitches. Like the field is terrible. Your life will be horrible. Yes. People have so many opinions about OBGYN, like we're the devil. Right. Like terrible. And the malpractice is so high. You'll never have a life. They scare the crap out of you. And so the background of that, plus, you know, passing out and seeing a, a video of a vaginal delivery, I had been just fighting it and fighting it. And when I finally realized those are my people. Those are the patients I am excited to see. And you cannot fight what you're actually excited about. It was a huge moment for me of, of realization. And I kind of, you know, never turned back. And I knew, I knew that OBGYN was for me at that moment. I love that story so much. One, because I relate so much to it with my own journey, but also 
the first time I saw a surgery, I was an undergrad and there was a pre-med program where you could go rotate. I was in Auburn, Alabama, so very small, but we would go rotate with some local doctors. And the first person I ever rotated with was an OBGYN and they had an ectopic pregnancy that they were doing laparoscopy on. And I passed out in the OR and I was, (sighs) oh my gosh, I'll never be a surgeon. Like, obviously I can't be a surgeon because- of this pass out moment. And then it's funny how, as you said, you know, sometimes those first experiences are nothing like what it's actually like to do the job. So I always tell everybody who's a pre-med or a med student, if they pass out in the OR or pass out at the site of graphic imaging or blood, that's okay. And so many people have done it. And then you learn to acclimate or know what to expect. And it's always a very different story when you're the person in charge versus an observer. Don't you think? Totally. Absolutely. I always say you're never going to pass out when you're driving the car. You might get like car sick or nauseated when you're the passenger, you're in the back, you're squished in the corner. But when you're driving, you don't get car sick. It's the same thing. Like when you're in the driver's seat, you're fine. And yeah, so many people go through that. So common. Well, what I really want to talk to you today about is some things that, you know, you've been on social media. You're such a huge proponent and supporter for inclusivity. So whether it is using the right pronouns, talking about making sure that the LGBT community has proper access to care and even knows what their family building options are. And I think that there's a lot of people who don't understand this or it makes them nervous because whatever we don't understand is sometimes intimidating. And I think that goes for physicians too, especially some who might be, you know, a generation above you because, you know, the current state of medicine rightfully so, and thankfully is a different place than it used to be. So first of all, how did you get into this fertility preservation, family building for LGBT communities? How'd you kind of find this little special niche in our field? Yeah, it's so funny. I think, you know, first of all, I have to credit my parents. I grew up in a household where, you know, they are lifelong Democrats, socially progressive. And I'm so grateful for that, um, that I wasn't, you know, sort of fed those other storylines uh, from a young age. And so I always was around, you know, my parents and, and friends and family who were charitable and who taught me, you know, to care about people. It's really that simple to care about other people. Um, and I think the, what you said about that people do, I think, mean well and want to do the right thing is so true. And it's all about just, you know, teaching yourself and educating yourself or become being open to becoming educated from someone else and and just having your heart in the right place. It, it really is that simple. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Quince. The weather's getting warmer, so it's time to say goodbye to jackets and sweaters and hello to shorts and tees. I wanted to update my wardrobe for the long haul without spending a fortune. And luckily I found Quince. Now I've got a lineup of timeless pieces that keep me looking effortlessly chic year after year. The best part is that Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands, but Quince partners directly with top factories, cutting out the cost of the middleman, passing the saving to us, and only working with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices. I personally cannot wait to wear my cute tan linen set this summer. So it's your turn to get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com slash A-A-W for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. 
That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash A-A-W to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash A-A-W. Thank you, Quince. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Apostrophe. With the temperature starting to warm up, I'm so excited the summer is around the corner and getting ready and looking forward to the summer months. But I know that when I'm outside, enjoying nature, I need to pick up supplies to prepare myself for summer adventures. And if you want to get your skin glowing in time for summer, it's time for you to get started with Apostrophe, who is sponsoring this episode. Apostrophe's goal is to help you feel confident in your own skin. So whether you're dealing with breakouts, signs of aging, or acne scarring, Apostrophe will help you love the skin you're in. I personally love that you get access to an expert dermatology team, a tailored treatment plan. It's simple to sign up for your first visit, and there is no in-person appointment or trip to the pharmacy needed. We have a special deal for our audience. Get your first visit for only $5 at apostrophe.com slash A-A-W when you use our code A-A-W. That's a savings of $15. This code is only available to our listeners. To get started, just go to apostrophe.com slash A-A-W and click get started. Then use the code A-A-W at sign up and you'll get your first visit for only $5. Thank you, Apostrophe, for sponsoring this episode. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Ritual. Did you know that women were excluded from clinical research policy by federal law until 1993? But women belong in scientific research. They're essential and Ritual knows this. I choose Ritual Multivitamin every day because it is easy to take and I know that I am getting high quality and traceable ingredients in a clean and bioavailable forms. In fact, Ritual conducted a university-led human clinical trial for their Essential for Women 18 Plus multivitamin to assess its efficacy and the results showed increase in vitamin D levels by 43% and omega-3 DHA levels by 41% in just 12 weeks. No my shady business. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin that you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month at ritual.com slash A-A-W. Start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash A-A-W for 25% off. Thank you, Ritual. I want to start by something that I even know from we've been trying to redo our paperwork at Fora. So we are taking, you know, the regular, here's the paper you fill out and we're making it online. So it is a smart form where you put something in and then the questions that come depend on what you answer. And that makes a lot of sense in our field, but it's technically very challenging because there's so many different combinations of situations where people can present to you and want to start a family. And in the process of this form, I realized that a lot, a large proportion of even educated people don't understand some basic terminology. And I think that that is interesting because it can confuse people. So I'm going to ask you some really basic questions for you to kind of explain through just in case somebody is also confused. What here's basic definitions. So I'm going to have you go through really quickly, basic definitions of cis and trans. And then when it ta- we come to trans, what does it mean to be a trans man or be a trans woman? If you'll kind of go through that for people who might be too afraid or just don't even realize they don't know the answer. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and before I do that, I want to say that I myself, you know, identify as a, a cis female and that's fine, but I also 
was a single woman in fellowship who wanted to freeze my eggs. And I'm super open about this. As you know, it's all over my Instagram, social media. I am very open in talking about it because I think that's so important, the transparency of, yes, I'm a physician, but I'm also an egg freezing patient. And I went through it and I know exactly what that's like. And when I, not that long ago, four years ago, three years ago, froze my eggs, the paperwork was funny to me because it talked about couple. It talked about your male partner. I'm like, what the heck guys? Like I'm a, I'm a single woman and I'm sure you have lots of other single women coming. And there were a lot of things about your male partner and all of that. So we've made a lot of changes um, since then. And it's amazing how quickly the field is changing, but as a single woman going through egg freezing, not to the same extent, certainly, but I experienced that feeling of like, wait, are you not, are you not including me when you're, when you're talking about these patients? Right. Am I, the paperwork isn't made for me. Am I not supposed to be a patient here? Am I not included in your normal patients? And you're in the field. So isn't that even more shocking in a way? And I think that, you know, there's the, that's where we really have to change and be able be adaptable as clinicians because medicine does change and nobody intended that paperwork that you filled out to be discriminatory in any way or make you feel bad. Totally. Yeah. But it was right. And, you know, it gave you that twinge. And I think that's where we have to check ourselves and say, oh, I didn't intend for that to be the outcome of this paperwork, but it was. And is that how you want to start a relationship with a, between a physician and a patient? So I really do that's think such that, a good point. yeah, we set the tone for how this relationship is going to be from the very beginning, you know, from the website, from how people handle you on the phone, how do they ask, are you single or do you have a partner? Do they just presume you have a husband or could you have a wife? And I think that these are little things that, you know, even as the doctor, you don't have complete control over, right? Like you're not answering the phone. I mean, most of the time you're not answering the phone. You're not scheduling the patient. You're not asking the screening questions. And so taking control of those things or understanding how your clinic process what it is, I think that's really important. Yeah, it's huge. And exactly right now, I am probably step 10 that the patient gets to as the physician. They've already talked to the new patient scheduler, maybe my admin. They've filled out paperwork. They've seen the website. I feel really lucky at my clinic at Boston IVF, and I'm in Boston, which is a pretty progressive city. So I feel very lucky. They've been so incredibly um, you know, malleable and flexible and wanting to change and adapt and not get defensive, which I think is key. Um, and they want to be inclusive, which is so, so important. Um, so as far as language and, you know, every so often I'll come across a person who says that like, okay, and why does that matter? Kind of rolls their eyes as if it's, you know, the difference of tomato, tomato, but it's not, it is so important. This language, as you said, it means you are welcome here. You are included. You are who I'm talking to. And we want you here as our patients. We want to take care of you. It, it really means that much. And so definitions are important. And I'm kind of a stickler for it. I probably annoy people, but I don't care. I'm going to keep <laughs> I love you. Everyone uses the right language. For example, um, the definition of sex versus gender. And so when a person is born and what their embryo at the level of a, a pregnancy that early has sex chromosomes. And so they're either XX, which is typically what we would consider a female or XY, which is typically what we would consider an, a male. And there are actually variants of that that can be you know, a, a normal ongoing pregnancy as well. 
So that is the sex of the embryo, okay, or the sex of the person. And that's even really important in my field. And I, uh, it just makes me cringe. I even hear physicians sometimes say the gender of the embryo and I'm just, ah. and gender selection. People say, do you yes. do gender selection? Of course we talk about gender reveals and none of this is gender. This is all sex. And we've actually at Fora talked to our team members, you know, not just us, but like to the nursing staff and the people who interact with patients that don't ask the patients what gender embryo, you know, or they have, or ask, do they know the sex? Do they want to know the sex, you know, do, and talk about what the difference is because even, you know, people who are in healthcare don't understand the difference. Like you said, we have physicians saying gender selection. Yeah. And exactly. And it's, it is so important though. And the more that educating we do, and the more we use the right terminology, the more everyone will adapt that. And these things really matter. The gender of someone is a social construct. It's how they see themselves. It's their identity. Do they identify with male or female or neither or both? And, you know, these things are sort of on a spectrum and are very fluid. And I certainly don't claim to be an expert in it as a cis female, um, but I want to learn. I'm always learning and I'm very open to it. And I think that's huge. I am the first person to just ask a patient, did I use the right terminology? Is that, you know, if it's a transgender patient, is that what you prefer? Um, recently, actually, I learned that, you know, I used to say preferred pronouns and it's really moving towards personal pronouns. And I learned that from a patient and I love that because I think as long as you're open and you're, you know, open-minded and you're, like I said, heart is in the right place and you want to be inclusive, then you can learn these things and they, they change with time. And so preferred pronouns makes it seem like it's that person's preference. Like they like, you know, blue more than red. Right. It's, not, it's a personal pronoun because it's who they are. It's who they identify as, and it's who they are as a person. Um, so yeah, this language, uh, thing is, you know, it's not, it's not a small thing. It is super important. And then when people are curious and what the difference in cis and trans is, so you, this is something that I think, you know, more people who are in medicine understand, but I was trying to fill out paperwork and, you know, we were saying certain things like cis female and people didn't understand what it meant. Yeah. So Cis, and this is actually a terminology we use in science, like looking at molecules and things. So cis just means on the same side as essentially, and trans means opposite to essentially. And so if you think of cis female is sort of the same gender as your sex, and it's all sort of aligns um, what you would expect. Trans means you perhaps have um, a gender identity that's different than the sex you were born as. The other thing that gets confusing for people is does trans male mean they were born female or male? You know, that part. So if someone says they are trans male, they were likely born XX sort of quote unquote female, but they identify as male. So trans male is how they identify. Trans female identify as female. And another interesting part is the pronouns. You can't assume, I had someone ask me once, oh, so all trans people identify as they, right? And I said, no, not necessarily. And I think a good rule of thumb when you get confused is just ask the person because there aren't really rules. It's not, oh, this means that, one plus one is two. Just ask people, how do you like to be called? She, her, do you like they, him? And everyone has their own preferences. And I know people listening can't see this, but I'm holding on my badge and I have a she, her, hers on my badge. And some of the, you know, 
more old school docs <laughs> faculty are, <laughs> are a little confused by that. Like, yeah, I, I think I knew you were a she. But the point of the badge is again, inclusivity. It's all about inclusivity. It's that is the first thing a patient or someone on staff sees. And they say, oh, okay, Dr. Seidler is tuned into this. She gets it. She is an ally. And that's always the message I want to be putting out there. I think that's one of the most important. All this is so important, but I love that you said by showing your own pronouns, you are wearing a badge, in this case, an actual badge, but you are telling the world that you're comfortable talking about pronouns. I want to know your pronouns. I'm okay with whatever you are. However you identify, that is welcome here and in this space because I've had some people say, well, I don't need to tell my pronouns because I identify as, you know, what my sex is. It doesn't really matter. But I think it matters to the receiver. The point of sharing your pronouns isn't always for you. It's actually a message that you're sending to other people that they can share their pronouns with you and be welcome with whatever is, you know, received. And I think that that's an important part of why we're starting to see pronouns. I mean, we have them in our EMR, but also like people are putting them in emails and in Instagram bios and Twitter bios and on badges. And I think that that is really important to be an ally and show that you're an ally. Essentially, Dr. Seeler is safe. You know, I can talk about this because one thing that we know is that our, you know, patients who might identify differently or who are LGBT have had discrimination at various stages of their in medicine or with healthcare providers and teams. Yeah. And that sometimes makes them really hesitant to want to open up and be transparent about their goals and their life and their story. And our field is so personal. We want to know all that information. So I think opening up that conversation is so important. Oh, hundred percent. I mean, I could never claim to understand even a fraction of what people of marginalized groups go through. And I know it breaks my heart, but I know that medicine is not a safe place for a lot of people. And I so desperately want to change that. And any little step that we can take to be more inclusive is, is so important. I used to say, you know, let's talk about alternative paths to family building, but really I've switched because they're not really alternative. They're just the path to family building. Yes. And it is yes. what fits any person or any couple at any stage of the game that what is going to make the most sense. And not everything always goes according to plan. Before we jump into all the different family building options, I want to touch on fertility preservation for trans people who may be in the process of transitioning or going to transition. Because one thing that I find is that a lot of people don't understand that this is something they should consider or something they may want to do and that they may want to do it earlier just because it might be easier for their long-term journey. Do you see any people who are undergoing fertility preservation if they're transgender? What's your experience? Yeah, absolutely. And they're some of my favorite patients to take care of. Um, and typically being, you know, an OBGYN trained, I'm more so seeing trans men. So I'm more so seeing people who are born with ovaries and uterus and are transitioning to, you know, male and want fertility preservation in the form of typically egg freezing. And so, you know, in our world, egg freezing is, has become or is becoming, you know, more commonplace and we're seeing it more and more. And I think during the pandemic, I even saw it more than ever um, as people are sort of thinking about their future and their family building plans. And I absolutely love what you said, Nat, that this isn't 
quote unquote alternative or, you know, all of that makes it sound so, you know, weird or something. And it's not, it's just, you know, family building comes in lots of different flavors and this is just one of them. And so seeing patients who want egg freezing prior to potentially getting an oophorectomy or having their ovaries surgically removed as part of their sort of gender affirming treatment um, is, is really special that we can offer that now. And egg freezing has come, a, come such a long way that it's, it's, not, it's no longer experimental. It's truly a great thing to offer for you know, having more options in the future. I've taken care of some transgender people at this transition also. And I always tell, you know, the different doctors in town, I don't actually manage the hormones in the transitional phase, but there are some endocrinologists who do, but I always say, Hey, have them come see me for a consult because if they have a consult about preserving their fertility and they don't want to great, they've been educated. They made a personal choice that suits them. Awesome. And the thing that I have found is that we tend to make decisions in a tunnel of where we are right now without understanding what the future may hold. And what I mean by that is you may say, that's not important to me, but you may not know what a future partner, what may be important to them and having options open for your family building. One keeps that door open. If that person, you know, if you fall in love with somebody and this is very important to them, and it's not to you, what that's going to be either a conflict in your relationship, or maybe your heart changes as you fall in love with this person. I think there's just, the future is yet undefined. So you can make decisions for you. And I tell single women that's who are freezing their eggs, you can make decisions for you right now. And you may say, I'm fine, not freezing my eggs, even though my AMH is low, because I'm cool with donor eggs later, but your future partner may not be cool with that. And so where does that leave you? And so by having these options, you're keeping more doors open. And specifically, it can be really expensive to add an egg donor to the mix later. And so by having your own eggs as an option in whatever that family building plan may look like can be really important. And I find that a lot of people haven't really considered that piece of the puzzle. They're looking at right now, they want to have their gender affirming surgery. They want to be done with the transitioning phase. And they're not necessarily thinking of the family that comes later. Have you found that also? Yes, absolutely. And, you know, a lot of these people are young, you know, I wasn't thinking much about this in you know, my teens or twenties. And I can totally identify with what you're talking about because a lot of people are surprised to hear this, but I don't think I want kids myself. And yet I still froze my eggs because it's all about options. You don't want to have regret later. You want to give yourself the gift of options. And I loved your um, egg freezing podcast with Valerie. It was fantastic. And you guys talked about when is the right time to freeze your eggs? The moment you're thinking about it. Right now. <laughs> right now. So, so if you're, you know, considering that you just, you deserve the option and you deserve the information, like you said. So just coming for that consult, I am never going to be upset if a patient comes for a consult and doesn't get treatment. I am so happy that they were educated and given all of the possibilities and options. And you talked about, you know, future partners and it brought up another point, gender and sexual orientation. Also two different things. And I kind of think of them as two different axes. So they can, so sexual orientation, meaning are you heterosexual or straight? Are you homosexual or quote unquote gay? Um, somewhere in the middle, bisexual, pansexual, asexual, again, very much a spectrum and you can fall on 
sort of anywhere on that spectrum. And that is a different axis than gender. So you cannot presume, okay, I have a trans male in front of me, that person is going to want, you know, this type of partner, a straight female or a gay male. Like you cannot assume that. It can, any one of those things, um, any combination you can see. And so having just the option of having, you know, these gametes, these frozen eggs, it just opens up possibilities for your future family. Have you had people freeze their eggs when they've already started testosterone? Yes. And I'm so glad you asked that. We actually at Boston IVF published a paper on this. Um, Angela Leong was the first author. She's new to Instagram. She's great. Um, and we found that even when people had started testosterone therapy and had to stop for egg freezing, because in the past we thought, ooh, those eggs, you know, egg quality won't be good. Their response to stimulation won't be good. And we actually found that those patients did very well and still got quite a good egg yield. Um, and so it's absolutely still a possibility, even if that person has started testosterone therapy already. And I think that's an important message to hear for people that it's not like it's, oh, I've already started T, so now it's too late. You still have options open. It's still worth getting the information, thinking about your life, your goals, what's important and making a decision. We both know, you and I, that egg freezing is not necessarily the hardest procedure to go through, but it's not easy either. You have to take shots. You have to come in for appointments. You have to have a procedure under anesthesia takes a couple of weeks and it's expensive. So, you know, what a trans male goes through to try to say, Hey, I'm going to freeze my eggs. That is a lot different than what a trans woman may go through. If we're talking about freezing sperm, right? Because I always, it's much easier. I really always say, Hey, there's almost no reason not to freeze sperm. If you have sperm, you're going to be taking hormones. You're going to be doing things that are going to cause your sperm count to be non-existent. You may not want to come off that treatment in the future, we should easily get sperm and put it in the freezer. And it's just keeping an option open for you. And I think that that procedure is, there's no procedure. That process is very, very fast and it's not expensive. And so I, I think that you have to but the same thing, I've had people say, well, I didn't even know that was an option, right? So I think right, Which is just heartbreaking, right? That's just, that's so, such a bummer. I mean, just like patients getting cancer treatment and getting chemo or radiation, and they find out after the fact that they could have had egg freezing or at least an egg freezing consult. We hate to hear that. I mean, that is just, that's just tragic. And I feel really the exact same about someone who had their ovaries removed for gender affirming surgery and, and felt like they didn't have all the options presented to them, you know, ahead of time. I haven't, but I know there have been cases of, you know, a transgender male carrying a pregnancy. Have you had any patients like this present to you yet? I haven't personally, but I think we all are, you know, familiar with that. Was it Time Magazine? Like, Mm -hmm. oh, you know, before I think we were even in training and it was, it's just like such a image that's, you know, seared in a lot of people's memories because at the time it was just so radical. Um, but yeah, it's exciting to think about all of these possibilities and, and supporting them all. I always Have you had that? I haven't yet, but I feel like it's got to be coming soon. I'm really excited. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> I love when people present, and that's one of the questions that I ask anybody, you know, whether it, you know, they're single, they're partnered, what their stat, you know, status is, is what do you envision your family to look like? So even if we have two females and we're saying, Hey, what, what is the perfect world to you? Because what I find is that everybody 
has a different vision. And maybe one person's going to do all the carrying the babies. The other person's a support partner. Maybe both people want to use their eggs. They want to share a sperm donor. And I think that it's very important and interesting. I think you said it so great earlier. Don't assume things, but ask. And so by simply saying, hey, what is your vision? What is your goal? What do you want this family to look like? And then how do we sit over here and help you? So same thing, if you see a trans man, don't just presume, oh, well, he's transitioned, so he's not going to want to carry the baby. Maybe he does. We don't, you know, until you ask, you don't know the answers. And I think that some of this fear from doctors you know, doctors ask, they don't ask the wrong question or offend somebody. So I don't think it's coming out of the wrong place, but then they assume things and end up being more offensive. So simply saying, what do you envision? What's your perfect family look like? Those open-ended questions can give you a lot of insight into what that family is going to look like. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I've, I've adopted that phrase of yours, Nat, like, what is your goal? So important and applies to so many things. And when it comes to this, you know, I, I joke that patients sort of are, are infertility patients who are attempting pregnancy and struggling through fertility treatments. Yes, of course, their goal is pregnancy. But beyond that, their goal is being heard, being listened to, feeling validated, feeling like they are part of the process, feeling like the experience they're going through is not painful, it's not scary. And of course, transgender people feel the exact same way. So in that vein, it's not just about, okay, let's get those eggs in the freezer. It's about your experience. You know, it's the, it's the journey getting there and it's how did that feel and how, you know, what was your experience like? And so because of that, I think it's really important that we offer, you know, certain things that maybe wouldn't be obvious for most patients you see, for example, vaginal or transvaginal or internal ultrasounds are like a mainstay of our monitoring and testing. And that may or may not be something a trans man wants or feels comfortable with. And so that's an example of something I would talk to him about at consult. Have you ever had an internal ultrasound? Have you had a pap with a speculum placed? How do you feel about having that sort of penetration? Are you okay with that? And a lot of times they're not, and they would prefer an abdominal ultrasound. And, you know, I've had patients say to me, I didn't even know that was an option. And and that goes for other patients too, patients with a history of sexual trauma, for example. And so having these conversations, can we try to do an abdominal ultrasound? Might not get as good a look at the ovary, but we can absolutely do our best. And if that is super important to the patient, then to me, that goal is just as important as their goal of freezing their eggs. I I agree with that so much. And I think that that's important is that we make the process as easy as possible for anybody, anybody who's a patient. And I always say you can handle whatever's in front of you if you expect it, if you know what's coming and you understand the process. So if we don't walk through, these are normally vaginal ultrasounds. The procedure is going to be like this. This is how it normally goes. And things that maybe seem really obvious to us don't always seem so obvious to people who the fertility clinic is a very brand new place. It seems very scary. We're talking about body parts. Maybe we don't always want to talk about. And I think just breaking it down into the very basics is so helpful. And I love that you brought that up. I also want to kind of wrap up here thinking about, you know, when we talk about people who are starting a family who need, you know, donor sperm. So if we have, you know, either a lesbian couple, a single woman who's ready to get pregnant, whatever the situation is, 
there's different barriers to using donor sperm. And we see this for gay men or single men too, right? And we see them much higher for men who want to become parents than women, meaning the process of getting donor sperm is typically much easier than the process of getting donor eggs and a uterus and going through that process. And I find that often people aren't prepared. So I'll give an example. I'll have a lesbian couple and they'll say, oh, we want to use this known friend's sperm. And the reason why is often because they think it's cheaper, right? There's this cost thing. Oh, I think it'll be cheaper. It's free. It's right there. He'll give it to us. But really, the FDA has all these guidelines and processes and we have to draw certain sets of labs and do certain screenings and C-Psych and C-Legal and all this stuff. And I always say, so I obviously am in Texas, so a very different political world than you're in. And I always say, hey, this is a red state. And if something were to happen to you, I think that we need to think about what is your family structure look like and how do we protect it the most? And I would love to live in a world where two people who are, you know, the same sex are married and they are the couple and that no matter what happened, their wishes and their will would be followed. But the reality is that we have to admit certain places are more conservative than others. So if there was a known biologically genetic father who then chose to try to come and get custody, we can't guarantee that that person wouldn't be successful if, you know, let's say both parents died in a car accident in these really crazy stories that we hear about. And that's protected with an anonymous sperm donor. You know, that person gave up their rights. They got paid for the service. That's a completely different thing. And so I think there's some legal and ethical challenges when it comes to introducing directed or known donors into this relationship that people don't always think about until you start talking about big picture goals. Have you found that also? No, it's it's so true. And it was not intuitive to me uh, in training until I started practice where these nuances really come into the picture. So I've had um, lesbian couples come saying they have a friend, they want to use the sperm. And immediately I say, I absolutely will work with you to do this if this is what you want, but I want to tell you it's not what you think it is. You know, it you think it's faster and cheaper, and it's actually much longer and way more expensive. So they have to quarantine sperm for usually at least six months, do FDA testing. They have to pay for all of that testing. They have to pay for storage of the sperm during quarantine. They typically have to pay for multiple psychosocial counseling and legal fees for that parentage part that you're talking about to say, we are the intended parents. This is just the donor of the sperm. You know, it's just DNA, um, as I like to say. <laughs> so using, uh, using getting, you know, just that DNA, not the parent from an anonymous bank is just much cleaner, safer in a lot of ways. Um, and I think we've seen sort of an uptick in this I've had patients recently, again, I think the pandemic has really pushed people to deeply consider their goals, their family, and say, hey, maybe this is as good a time as ever. I'm working from home. Let's do this. And kind of maybe has moved up their family building plans. And I've had many patients say that they've looked at, you know, donor sperm in a bank and they're just flying off the shelves. You know, they'll find a donor they're interested in. We're looking at the genetics to make sure everything is compatible and you know, they're gone by the end of the week or something. So we're definitely, I think, seeing this. And I, I for one, am just happy to see that this is becoming so, so much more commonplace. Um, but certainly we have, we have some work to do still. Okay, last question. 
And I don't have an answer for it, but I'm just curious your thoughts. I, I struggle with, for gay couples, the financial burden to become parents because a lot of them will come and say, well, here's my sister so we can use her egg and she'll carry the baby for us. And that's considered, you know, traditional surrogacy where it's one woman who uses her own egg and then would carry the baby. And that is illegal slash frowned upon in many, many places. And the reason is some of those ethical and, you know, legal issues that we talked about. So our gay couples have to get, and our single men have to find an egg donor and they have to find somebody to carry the baby. And I always say, if you have a friend slash family member who's willing to contribute in one way or another, get them to carry the baby and get an egg donor from, you know, a bank or an agency or a fresh program or whatever, that will be a more cost effective way. That's often the opposite of what they might think because they'll be like, well, this is, you know, my sister. So it's the genetics. And if there is a genetic importance, we can totally understand that. But gestational carriers are expensive, whether you're going through this because you're a single man or a gay couple, or if you're, you know, just patients or a woman whose uterus is not receiving embryos, or you can't carry a baby, you've had your uterus taken out or whatever, gestational carriers are extremely expensive. And that's a huge barrier to care. Have you found that people kind of come in sometimes not understanding the entire process? And do you have any, I don't know how to get that process cheaper. I just don't see it in the current world. Kind of what's your thoughts on that? Yeah. Oh my gosh. And, you know, this is part of why inclusivity is so important to me. I absolutely love and adore the field that I'm in, reproductive endocrinology, but it always felt, it kind of irked me a little because it always felt a little less like altruistic than other fields in medicine. And I hated the idea that someone's family building plans would hinge on how much money they had to spend on it or, or didn't have. And that has always really bothered me. And so, you know, advocacy is so important. You know, groups like Resolve and Resolve New England um, that we work with to, you know, go to the state house, talk to, you know, get legislation changed and talk to um, members of the House and Senate is just so incredibly important because just, just being here and talking to patients about costs is, is important, but making change, affecting change on a larger level is really what matters, you know, changing policy. And all of these things should be covered by insurance and, and every insurance. And it shouldn't just be in Massachusetts where I am so happy to practice because it's a mandated state. It should be federal. It should be everywhere in this country and really in the world. But um, we have a long way to go, um, you know, claiming we're such a developed nation. And yet, still not having coverage for, you know, things like infertility or same-sex family building or family building in any flavor it comes in. So yes, I mean, I'll, I'll step off my soapbox, but yeah, I feel really strongly about that too, Nat. So I think, um, you know, same-sex male couples who come in, it, it's really tough compared to a same-sex female couple that might be able to get pregnant with a few hundred dollars for some donor sperm and maybe that's it versus same-sex male couple are, I think, often shocked to hear that donor egg can be twenty to $40,000 or more and gestational carrier can be a hundred grand. I mean, and it's an incredibly limited medical resource. So I also have, I have a couple right now who's been looking for almost a year for a gestational carrier. I mean, it's brutal. And that, you know, that's something that I think if we make it 
safer and um, you know more regulated and we have coverage with insurance, these are all things that can start to change over time, I hope. I'm so thankful that you've come on the podcast because we could just keep talking forever and ever. But <laughs> I do think that some of these just really basic things and the overall arch of how you approach people, how you set the tone, if you are a physician, what the people in your office do and having a moment to talk to your staff, to your nurses, to the people who answer the phone, who schedule appointments, who do the financial counseling about understanding, you know, how do we ask these questions? What do they mean? Do we put pronouns in charts? What does our paperwork say? And really doing an internal check of your own processes at the place that you practice, because you can be the best, most inclusive doctor in the whole, whole world. But if somebody gets turned off before they come to you, you're never going to be able to help them. And so making sure that there's less barriers to care, this is overall, this should be an easy one, but we really have to put time and effort into it. And I appreciate all your insight. Can you tell everybody where to find you so that they can follow along so that they can see you as a patient if they're interested and how they can get in touch with you? Yeah, thanks, Nat. Um, I am on Instagram as Emily Seidler, MD. Um, I practice out of Boston IVF in the Boston, Massachusetts area, and we are actually still completely virtual for all of our consults. So a lot of people say, you know, oh, I'm, you know, on the east side, not west of Boston. It doesn't matter. You can really be as long as you can come to one of our satellites for testing, and we have a lot of satellite offices, then you can see me um, virtually through Zoom, through telephone. Um, anytime. And so I, I'm always accepting new patients and I would love to take care of you. Nah, thank you so much, Emily. Thank you, Natalie. This was so much fun. <laughs> hey friends, I hope you enjoyed that episode as much as I did recording it. I think Emily is just amazing. Thank you for coming on. And I think some of the things she said really resonated with opening our mind and really evaluating how the words that we say and the things that we do, how they impact people. As always, I'm so thankful for your support. You can follow along on Instagram at Natalie Crawford MD. You can check out the YouTube channel or stay tuned every Sunday for another episode. Thanks, friends.